You're listening to the free abridged edition of the Energy Transition Show. Energy infrastructure, solar power, wind turbines. India is absolutely at the forefront of the global transition. The market signals are quite clear that at the moment it's not a good idea to try and build new coal in India. On the other hand, the market signals for renewables are quite good because solar is doing quite well and wind is doing quite well as well. For May 31st, 2023, this is the Energy Transition Show with Chris Nelder. Today we're going to update the story of India's energy transition. A lot has changed since we last had a serious conversation about India in our two-part discussion with Tim Buckley in episodes 91 and 93 way back in 2019. So it just felt like it was time to refresh our understanding of what's happening there. But India has also employed a number of strategies in its transition that are markedly different from what the rest of the world is doing, and examining them offers an interesting perspective and sheds new light on the challenges of the transition for poor, developing countries. And there's another reason we wanted to revisit India. The day that we recorded this interview, the UN released new statistics indicating that India is now the world's most populous country. And many of those people are desperately poor, living on incomes as low as $6 a day. If the energy transition is to succeed, and succeed in a just and equitable way, it absolutely must address the needs of the largest population in the world. Our guest in this conversation is Mohua Mukherjee, a senior research fellow at the Oxford Institute for Energy Studies. Previously, she was a development economist and project manager who worked in over 40 countries during her long career with the World Bank. She headed the India Solar Program for the bank from 2014 to 2017 and has a deeply informed and intimate understanding of the challenges and opportunities inherent in India's energy transition and especially in its solar sector. I'm thrilled to be able to have this conversation with her because she has studied so many facets of India's energy transition in real depth, and I know that this discussion will leave you with a much more complete picture of the energy transition in India. This interview went on for a whopping three and a half hours, so we're breaking it into two parts. In this first part, we'll discuss the overall energy mix in India, we explore the dynamics of the coal power sector, we take a deep dive into the solar power sector, including India's innovative financing strategy leveraging a world bank loan, and we wrap it up with a look at the wind power sector. In the second part, which will run as episode 201, we'll talk about India's use of oil and natural gas, including why they are continuing to buy oil from Russia, even as the West rejects it. We'll explore India's unique approach to transitioning mobility to vehicles running on electricity and CNG. We'll discuss India's strategy for building domestic industries for manufacturing batteries, solar, hydrogen electrolyzers, and other clean energy technologies. We'll review the country's astonishing progress in improving access to electricity for its massive population. We'll consider the challenges that its electricity distribution utilities face and how they are trying to improve efficiency. And we'll end with a discussion of India's progress on its climate initiatives and the essential task of ensuring a just transition as the country winds down its dependence on coal-fired power. So stay tuned for that. Then in the news segment, we'll check out how a renewables developer in India is successfully raising substantial amounts of debt financing. We'll consider the import of the EU's new CBAM trade rules. We'll contemplate the implications of lithium nationalization in Chile. We'll look at an updated estimate for global EV sales. And we'll note the latest failed attempts by the fossil fuel industry to avoid being held to account for the climate damage caused by their products. 
But before we go to the interview, announcements, 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 we'd like to welcome our latest group subscribers, the Treasury of Australia. Keva, Finland's largest pension insurer, serving 1.3 million public sector employees and pensioners, and SMUD, the Sacramento Municipal Utility District, a community-owned electric utility serving Sacramento County and parts of Placer County in California, and one of the 10 largest publicly-owned utilities in the United States. We're so pleased to have all three organizations listening to our complete shows. And now, the first part of our interview with Mohua Mukherjee, recorded April 19th, 2023. So let's bring her into the conversation now. Welcome, Mohua, to the Energy Transition Show. Thank you very much, Chris. It's a pleasure to be on your show. We're going to cover a lot of ground in this conversation, addressing many different facets of the state of the energy transition in India. So let's just get right to it. And I think I want to start with the big picture here. Just in general terms, how is India's energy transition coming along? Like how much of their power is generated from clean sources and how much from coal and other fossil fuels? Well, India, which used to be the world's second most populous country and is just about to become the most populous, in fact, mm. is also the third largest emitter, and it relies on coal for roughly 70% of its electricity generation at the moment. But despite rapid growth in clean energy investments, which went from almost nothing to 170 gigawatts in a few years, India currently only meets about 12% of its actual power generation with renewable energy. And another 6% of generation is from gas. So coal use has been increasing in the past year due to increased electricity demand and the need for firm dispatchable power. But why has reliance on coal-fired power been increasing, you might ask? Well, paradoxically, you could say it was related to climate change and global warming, of all things. Mm. There have been unexpected and unseasonal heat waves in 2022 and 23 with intense summer weather starting a full three months earlier than usual. Wow. Yeah. These soaring temperatures have caused a surge in overall electricity demand. The rising demand for cooling that extends all the way into the evening hours has significantly pushed up the customary evening peak electricity demand, and it's resulted in India's power consumption growing a full 10% in February, even compared to last year. Mm. And on top of this came the spike in global energy prices following the Russian invasion of Ukraine and the non-delivery to India of contracted LNG shipments from Gazprom due to its nationalization in Germany. So in early 2022, as the economy emerged from the pandemic, it was hit by multiple crises which culminated in prolonged power blackouts across North India mainly. These were an unpleasant throwback because widespread blackouts had not been an issue since around 2016. And the explanation goes like this. There was depressed industrial activity during the two preceding years of the pandemic. Domestic coal stockpiles at Indian power plants were still at historic lows in February 2022. This was following the lower demand due to the lockdowns, etc., and very low plant load factors of around under 40%. Wow. Yeah, can you imagine? So yeah. coal plants were getting low on coal inventories. So this was something that was going on. People knew this was the case. And coal transport logistics were not yet back in place in early 2022 because these were supposed to have still three months to go till the summer heat set in. Right. In fact, passenger trains were prioritized over freight. 
because they wanted to get people traveling again everywhere. Mm. So the passenger trains were prioritized and they were just coming back into service after the pandemic. So this meant that the freight trains, which deliver coal from mines to distant power plants, were caught completely unprepared for the sudden high freight delivery demand for coal due to the early heat wave. So the government, realizing that there were looming shortages of domestic coal relative to the spike in electricity demand, actually ordered thermal power plants to import coal from anywhere they could find it, which was usually Indonesia, Australia, and South Africa. So they ordered them to arrange imports of coal on an emergency basis, and they wanted plant operators to blend imported coal with domestic coal. But imported coal was in short supply everywhere in the world due to intense global competition in early 2022, if you remember. Yeah. And it was very expensive. And coal plant operators struggled to find enough supply. They basically didn't find it, is the truth of the matter. Right. So blackouts couldn't therefore be avoided during the heat wave that occurred in the first and second quarters of 2022, despite everybody's best efforts. But the government was absolutely determined not to let that happen again in 2023 and beyond. I need to tell you, I mean, temperatures that are approaching 50 degrees Celsius or 122 degrees Fahrenheit, if you can imagine, can quickly become fatal when there's no electricity even for a fan at the very least, or when pumps stop working and limit the water supply. So I should just conclude this point by saying that security of electricity supply, therefore, becomes a life and death matter in an Indian heat wave. Yeah, I can't imagine because I grew up in Tucson, Arizona, and I am familiar with 122 degrees Fahrenheit. <laughs> <laughs> but not with the power blackout. <laughs> no, and also not with the humidity that you probably have in India yeah. at the same time, which is just a killer. That's right. You know, it's kind of interesting to me that with the capacity factors having fallen as low as 40%, that they actually kept the plants around because in a lot of sort of competitive market plant operations, certainly in the U.S., when capacity factors drop below about 50%, they tend to get closed down. Yeah, these are not competitive markets. These are highly regulated and controlled markets, and a lot of them belong to the government. Right. So they're kept a standby capacity. Gotcha. Okay. So how would you characterize the major trends in power generation? I mean, what's the outlook for renewables and for coal-fired power generation? Well, I think it's pretty safe to say that the Indian government is pursuing an all-of-the-above power generation strategy. That includes coal, renewables, hydro, biomass, nuclear. If it makes electricity, they like it. Okay. <laughs> so for clean energy, the key thing is to find low-cost loans, as you know. That's the tricky part. Right. Because sunshine is endless. It's just the loans that are holding it back. And the payments for fossil fuel imports are generally not made with borrowed funds in India, whereas renewable technologies are. So that's an interesting kind of differentiator. Yes, for sure. And then let me come to the natural gas-fired power plants, because India has 25 gigawatts of them, but they were all out of use last year. And this was because of a regulatory issue, because it would have been uneconomic. Natural gas prices were too high, if you remember... They spiked after the Russia-Ukraine war. Oh, yes. So they were too high, and the government has a mandated electricity tariff that sets the maximum price for power. And so one thing was the tariff, 
And the other thing was that natural gas supplies were hard to come by because, as we mentioned, the cargoes in transit to India were being diverted to Europe, which was offering many multiples of the rates that were built into India's long-term natural gas contracts. Right. So they just competed them away. And the government then recently decided to keep its coal-fired power plants running at full capacity for the duration of the summer to avoid blackouts and to ensure an energy security. Some energy policy analysts suggested that national politics could also be influencing the directive. Mm. And it's kind of well known that electricity availability and subsidies do have a significant impact on election results in India. So incumbent, I guess, political parties, both national and state level, they naturally strive to provide uninterrupted power supply because that's what voters expect of them and hold them accountable for. So Blackouts are an absolute disaster for a governing party that is in a fierce electoral competition. No doubt. Yeah. So the development strategies for India to grow from a $3 trillion economy to a $5 trillion economy before the end of this decade. And India's per capita electricity consumption is currently only 1,100 kilowatt hours per year. That's the average. This is a quarter of the global average electricity consumption, and it's just one-fourteenth of the U.S. per capita electricity consumption. So there will still be a need to reach at least the global average of 4,400 kilowatt hours in order to attain the goal of a $5 trillion economy. So this would increase the average annual per capita income as well, which today stands only at around $2,000. So I think I can just conclude this point by saying the energy transition in India, that we have to keep this in mind, the energy transition in India has been self-financed so far. And despite a two-year gap due to the pandemic, India fell only five gigawatts short of meeting its target of 175 gigawatts of renewable energy by 2022. So that's pretty special. Yeah, it's an impressive performance. And I'm just caught once again on this figure that India's per capita energy consumption is just 1,100 kilowatt hours per year. And as you say, one fourteenth of the U.S. per capita electricity consumption. I mean, a modern American home could easily use that much electricity in a month. Exactly. All right. Well, let's get to some of the sector-specific stuff. And here I'd like to start with solar for a couple of reasons. One is that you have extensive knowledge of the solar sector in India, and we're going to come back to that point about self-financing. And you've published several studies on it. But also, the difficulty in arranging financing for solar projects, and especially rooftop solar projects in India, is very similar, I think, to the kinds of issues that solar financing faces really all across the developing world as we discussed on this show in episodes 189 and 190. And in those episodes, we had quite some critical words for the World Bank and for other MDBs. So with your many years of experience at the World Bank, I'm immensely curious to hear your responses. (laughs) So maybe we could just start there. Like, does India have the same issues as the rest of the developing world where a lot more utility-scale solar is getting built than distributed rooftop solar, mainly because there are fewer questions about the creditworthiness of the buyers, and so financing is easier and cheaper to get? In a word, yes, Uh absolutely. Certain distributed projects involving lots of widely dispersed small borrowers are even harder to finance 
than the large ones with fewer and more creditworthy stakeholders. And that seems quite evident. Yeah. But the reason we still need to pursue and crack that difficult nut and not just let the market settle where it may, but we really need to find solutions, is because it's the only way to mainstream the energy transition. As you know, the small borrowers need to be able to use clean energy too. And it's not just the brag book projects that you cut the showpiece kind of things. Right. Otherwise, if you just limit it to big things, then you haven't really gotten an energy transition. That's right. So that's why I think this is still worth pursuing. And a lot of renewable energy projects are simply unable to attract external funding. And if they do manage to attract funding, what we've seen is that it could be as expensive as 12 to 15% interest rates in US dollar terms at a time when the US or European market interest rate for a loan in US dollars was only in the 1% range. Right. Yeah, so what we find is that this 15% interest rate just kills the viability of a clean energy project in a developing country. Based on my experience, I would say that maybe a 5% borrowing rate in U.S. dollars would still have made it viable. Mm -hmm. A 5% rate would have also allowed the lenders to earn what I think would be a fair, maybe five-fold return on their money. So cost of funds is 1%. You're lending it out for 5%. Seems fair to me. But with a 15% dollar interest rate, it means there's an extra 10% markup. And this is what prevents a lot of developing country clean energy projects from ever seeing the light of day. Yeah, that's in fact something that came out very clearly in our discussion with Seth Kleiman in episode 189. Exactly. I really enjoyed listening to that discussion. Oh, good. And yeah, I've completely agreed with many of the things. We have to, at some point, talk a little bit more about the MDB issue that you wanted to talk about. Yes. And the fact that it is up to the countries to first really, really want this distributed energy. Because as you must remember from political economy perspective, the distribution company in most countries is state-owned, and it's not private like in the US. So they're very politically powerful, and they just simply don't want to allow distributed energy. So there's a huge policy shift that has to take place before we can start funding all these, but that's a separate conversation. So right. let's get back to India. Okay. So India gets around this problem of the 15% interest rate and all that that we were talking about. India gets around this problem by mainly funding projects domestically, and this is the key point, in local currency loans. Mm. So that's why India has the world's fourth largest installed capacity at the moment of renewable energy generation. I didn't realize it was the fourth largest, but yeah, that's what it is. Incredible. Yeah, all done on its own dime, which is quite impressive, I think. We hope you've enjoyed this free sample of the Energy Transition Show. Our full episodes cover much more and are typically 60 to 90 minutes long. When you become a full annual subscriber, you'll get two new complete episodes each month, access to our entire back catalog, extensive show notes, interview transcripts, the text of the news items for each episode, and access to our exclusive job board. Your premium members-only subscription will work in all apps and players that support podcast feeds, including Apple Podcasts and Pocket Casts, so you can easily listen from your mobile device on the go. 
The first 33 episodes of the Energy Transition Show were free, and always will be, so if you want to see what our full shows contain, feel free to check those out. Then we hope you'll become a member and support our show. In order to bring you the most unfiltered, unbiased, honest information possible, we have elected not to take any sponsors or advertisers. The Energy Transition Show is entirely supported by listener subscriptions. To become a subscriber and enjoy our full offerings, just point your browser to energytransitionshow.com and click the Become a Member button. Annual subscriptions, which include full access to our entire back catalog of full-length episodes, are just $60 a year. Monthly subscriptions are $6.99 a month and give you access to the two most recent episodes. Single episodes can be purchased for $7 each. We also offer discounted annual subscriptions for individual university students and professors, as well as group licenses for companies, nonprofits, and universities. So join us today and support our ad-free podcast featuring high-quality, cutting-edge interviews and news about the most important story of our time, energy transition. And now a quick look at some recent news items. Item 1. Renew Energy, one of the largest renewable energy independent power producers in India, announced in April that it has raised $400 million from senior secured green bonds. The corporate-style notes have a 7.95 coupon rate in U.S. dollars and have received a BA3 rating from Moody's and a BB rating from Fitch. These notes have been certified by the Climate Bonds Initiative and are in line with the ICMA Green Bond principles. The funds will be used to refinance existing dollar-denominated debt and finance Renew's growth initiatives. The offering was oversubscribed about four times with a total investor demand in excess of $1.5 billion, which pushed down the interest rate by 35 basis points. Renew Energy states on its website that it has 7.7 gigawatts of operational renewable capacity and an aggregate capacity of 13.4 gigawatts, including capacity already won in competitive bids. Last August, the company announced that it has raised $1.1 billion from 12 external commercial lenders to build a hybrid, round-the-clock, battery-enabled renewable project comprising 900 megawatts of wind, 400 megawatts of solar, and 100 megawatt-hours of battery storage capacity. Last year, Renew Power became the first Indian clean energy company to refinance its 2024 maturity dollar-denominated bonds with amortizing project loans from an Indian non-banking financial company. For more on green bonds and the Climate Bonds Initiative, listen to episode 35. For a deeper understanding of how green bonds are rated, listen to episode 167. Item 2. On April 18th, the European Parliament passed legislation approving the implementation of the Carbon Border Adjustment Mechanism, or CBAM, commencing January 2026. We discussed the CBAM at length in episode 193. Well, that's it for this episode of the Energy Transition Show. Thanks for listening. You can find our show archive and give us feedback and suggestions at energytransitionshow.com. On social media, you can follow us on Mastodon at transitionshow at mastodon.energy or on Twitter at transitionshow. Chris Nelder creates the show. Kevin Melsheimer edits it and makes us all sound brilliant. And Justin Ritchie produces our listener experience. Mike Sugar composed and produced our theme music, and you can find him at mikesugarmusic.com. The Energy Transition Show is a production of the XE Network.